Welcome to episode 3 of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us. Today, I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Thanks so much for joining me today on Reclaiming the Faith. To give you the basic premise for the show, imagine sitting in a coffee house or on your front porch with some friends, just talking about current events or maybe even having a Bible study. Then imagine that an early Christian, like Polycarp, who was a personal disciple of the Apostle John, joined in on the conversation. How would he respond? What advice would he give? What kind of insight could he offer about how the apostles approached those same core issues? What could he tell us about the way the Christians in his day faced similar situations? In episode three, I'm blessed to be joined by one of my best friends, Tyler Bryan, who has been in youth ministry for nearly a decade. We wanted to talk about youth ministry from an early Christian perspective, and particularly the role parents play in shaping their kids' spiritual development. And if you're blessed by this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave an honest review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to visit my website, reclaimingthefaith.com. Dot podbean.com and you can email me there at email philsbaker at gmail.com. And finally, last year I wrote a book about this new journey that Jesus and the early Christians have taken me on. It's called New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. You can purchase it on Amazon. And again, if it's a blessing to you, please leave an honest review there. Okay, no more intro stuff. Let's get episode three rolling. All right, so I'm sitting out here with my buddy Tyler Bryan. Hello. And hey, hey, buddy. We're looking out at uh, Lake Travis out here in Austin. It's yeah. pretty awesome. Dude, it's awesome. It is awesome. And uh, we've been having a great vacation. And Tyler is a youth minister mm-hmm. uh, up in Pennsylvania in the Harrisburg area. Yep. And we got to know each other through youth ministry in uh, Sugarland, a little suburb of Houston. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, kind of hit it off. And um, so Tyler has a ton of experience with youth ministry. And uh, so we thought it would be really cool to talk about uh, how the early Christians approached youth ministry, maybe in some <laughs> kind of a way, right? <laughs> if, they, to... if they had a youth ministry concept, <laughs> right, right. we'll find it today. So uh, before we do that, though, just to give you a little bit of introductions, Tyler, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to faith and like where you are now, I guess. Yeah, so I um, so I grew up here in Texas a little bit. Now I'm obviously in Pennsylvania. Um, but I grew up in Houston and um, grew up in a Christian home and grew up going to church, going to Bible studies and mission trips. And it was a huge part of my life, but for all different reasons and not really any of those reasons had to do with Jesus. Um, but it was a huge part of my life because that's where my friends were. It was a huge part of my, huge part of my life because that's where like the fun was. It was like huge. It was a mega church. Um, they're doing great things, but it was still a mega church. So it was like where the excitement was. That's why I went. Um, and I wound up not having a huge foundation of who Jesus was. Um, my family didn't wholly, didn't really talk about it a whole lot. Um, 
what we heard at church, we left at the doors on Sundays coming home. We didn't take it home with us really. So, um, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, but I'm a big believer in that like parents of the household are the number one pastors in their kids' lives. They are the number one example of what, of what it looks like to follow Jesus every day. And I, it's a pet peeve of mine when parents and, and people just in general like think of the church and youth ministries in general as like outsourcing faith. Because at the end of the day, if we, if we have your students or your kids for like, you know, an, an hour and a half a week and you have them for, you know, every night and every morning at home, who's the real influencer? So um, I didn't have that at home a whole lot. I had loving parents. I had a great childhood and it was you know, a whole lot of fun. Coming up here to Lake Travis all the time was a very fond memory of mine. But um, because I didn't have a foundation and a lack of it, there's a lot of issues that hit you in middle school and high school. There's a lot of, um, that's when life gets a little deeper. Like when I was in third grade, it was a really bad day when I got a fruit roll up instead of a, you know, a chocolate pudding pouch. Like, right? But I know it's not every kid's story. Some kids really are forced to grow up way faster than they should be. Um, but for me, life and friendships and relationships that ended and um, depression and suicidal thoughts happened in middle school and high school. And it really started to mess with me once, once puberty hit. And uh, in hindsight, looking back at this time in my life, I realized like, God uses these experiences to, sh- to shape how we impact the world and how we reach out to the world. Um, and so a huge part of what we do actually in Pennsylvania right now is like, as we encourage our students to get involved and to serve is to actually ask them, like, what experiences do you have? So had you asked me that, I would have said, you know, depression or divorced parents or whatever it may be. And I found quickly that like my heart was growing and growing and growing for teenagers because that's when I was lost and that's when I needed someone the most. And I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't even know that I needed it in the time, in the moment. This is all hindsight, right? Hindsight's a beautiful thing, but I, I didn't get that. And so I just want to spend my life until God calls me out of it, reaching out to those who I know just like me at that time are lost. And I found myself working in Austin and Chicago and Houston and now Pennsylvania. Um, and then having met with some awesome people and working with some awesome people along the way, such as you and Adam, uh, who's in Sugarland, and um, you know Ian in Chicago was a huge influence on me, and uh, some great youth ministry friends in Pennsylvania get together and we kind of share ideas and pray for one another. But um, dude, it's all about for me. It's all about trying to reach out to an age group where, like, I felt lost. So, yeah. That's great, man. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So, like, um, what about the early Christians' uh, dynamic with, with students uh, has really shaped the way that you approach youth ministry? So, I know, like, the listeners, you know, won't understand all of this because we've talked about this before this conversation here. We've talked about this in, in the car earlier. We talked about this on the phone as we keep in touch. Um but there is, I feel like, and this isn't, this isn't true of everybody, all right? This is a generalization that I'm making about a lot of parents of teenagers that I've worked with over my, you know, nine plus years doing youth ministry. And again, it's not every single one of them, but 
there is a basic foundational philosophical difference with how we approach the maturity level and discipleship abilities of teenagers. And what I mean by that um, is, and this is rightfully so in a lot of ways, parents find that their primary role, maybe not primary, but a huge role for them to, to, to fulfill is to protect and to guard and to shield their children, which is a really good like heart issue. It's a really good desire to have. And I'm realizing this now though, as like my son is, I mean, he's two, right? And I can't imagine when he's 12 or 13 or when I have, when we have more kids, what it's going to look like, but there's got to be a time where my son is not my two-year-old anymore. He is a man, maybe a small little young man, but he's a man or my daughter is a young woman, like she's a woman of God, and my son is a man of God. And I have to, while still in the household, release them to him, where my job may no longer be of protection, but of discipleship, mentoring, and guiding. And I say that with hesitancy, because that's easier said than done, and I can't imagine a time where I don't look to, first and foremost, protect my child. Like I, there, my son's diabetic, right? There's not one thing I won't do to make sure he doesn't like live through the night and get through the lows and the highs of blood sugar. And there's not one thing I would do to protect him. But I say this all thinking about youth ministry in the teenage years as a real, as a chance for discipleship and growth. Um, so parents see largely see students and see youth as like, they're my kids. They're my babies. They're you know, I can remember yesterday they were five years old. Like, I get it. Like, that's really, that's really like meaningful. I get that. They're not five years old. You know, they're not your babies anymore. They are young men and women who've got, who God has created in his image with a unique combination of giftings and skills and personalities that he's calling for them to use in the world now. Um, and you might get pushback on that. Like, well, our kids aren't ready, right? Our kids, they're still in school. They're still teenagers. Like, what do they know? Um, but inherently, there's something made in us that makes us ready. And I look at the disciples. Um, Jesus is going to the temple with his disciples, and only two of them pay the temple tax to enter. And it's Jesus and Peter. So Peter is like, what, at least 18? I'm going to go ahead it's and— It's got to be 20. 20? Okay, so, so I'm going to go ahead and yeah. caveat to the audience that Phil knows a whole lot more about like no, you're crazy. church history and first century Judaism and culture than I ever will or do. Um, I hope that throughout this conversation, every time I'm wrong, like I just was, you'll correct me, Phil. Um, but so we know that Peter, though, like the point is he was the only one who was of age, right? Yeah, yeah right. He's married also. Only one that yeah. we yeah, see yeah, yeah. during the time that yeah. Jesus is traveling that he's married. So... We can assume and estimate then that the disciples ranged in age, excluding Peter. So the rest of the 11 were, we think, John, I've heard like, I've heard different things, but 13 seems to be a standard age thrown out there for, for John, 15 and 16. Uh, but we know that they're not like adults. They're not like fully seen as societal contributing adults because of that story. 
that's exactly what we're dealing with in youth ministry. We're dealing with 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, all the way up, all the way from 6th grade to 12th grade, depending on what youth ministry you're setting you are. Sometimes it's 7th grade, right? Sometimes you have 5th grade thrown in there. But there's like a, a general like preteen, teenage setting. And so the basic foundational philosophical difference that myself and some parents have is that I don't see their kids and their children and their teenagers as young guys and girls who need to be like shielded away and shied away from the realities of this world and the realities of the faith and the realities of the cost of following Jesus. Instead, I see them as disciples because they're the same age of John. Um, and I know that we're probably going to get to it, but you have a really cool like insight onto who John is just because your story from like Peter and John being in the, in the going to the temple, right? Like, um, together um, from the Sanhedrin. So there's there's something too like youth that we shouldn't shy away from, but we should really capitalize on because of their passion, their exuberance for life, their excitement over the smallest things. Like adults have a hard time getting excited about, you know, what excites teens. And it's a tool that I feel is in our arsenal as youth pastors and parents to really mentor and disciple teenagers um, to be disciples and to be the church, not just to be like shielded away and like protected from like, oh, they have different worldviews or, hey, that's like, you know, there's some really bad stuff in the news. Like, don't let them watch it. Like, that's not my view of youth ministry. Yeah, that's good, man. It's making me really thinking about this, this quote from uh, Clement of Rome in 95. He says, let your children be partakers of true Christian training. Let them learn, a, learn of how great avail humility is with God, how much the spirit of pure affection can prevail with him, hmm. how excellent and great his fear is, and how it saves all those who walk in it with a pure mind. And so it's really neat, that first line, especially let your children yeah. be partakers of true Christian training. Like, don't yeah. hold them back. Yeah. So what, what like are there any thoughts that you that you take from that? I love kids ministries. We have a great one, you know, in Pennsylvania. Um I love what they do. And I've never been a children's pastor. I've never really worked at a, even a VBS. So my knowledge and expertise with children is like minimal, right? It's very little. So I say this, you know, and take it with a grain of salt as you will, but Throughout scripture, and I say throughout, like, you know, a few times throughout the scripture in the Old Testament specifically, you were instructed to, like, guide our kids in, our, in the way that we were brought up and pass down the traditions and to tell the stories and to lead them, right? Um, but there's, there's a point in time where that, we realize, is simply head knowledge. That's just, we're teaching them stories and we're teaching them, this is who Jesus is on paper, like, we're giving you a lesson on paper. Like, this is who Jesus is, which is good, and it's biblical, and I wouldn't ever take that back. But there's a point, and as C.S. Lewis describes it, um, like, the longest distance you'll ever travel is from your head to your heart. There's a point where what you learn becomes who you are. There's a point as, like, what you learn and what you know becomes, like, how you see and how you reach out to the world around you. Like, for, you know, first through fifth grade, I've always learned that 
like, oh yeah, Jesus is near to those who hurt. And, you know, like, it's just common phrases that we may hear. Well, now, as we're entering, like, you know, a little bit more maturity and a little bit more depth, here's your chance to actually be like Jesus and to reach out to someone who is in pain and who hurts. Here's your chance to not just know it, but to live it out. Um, and that's, so I love that quote, like, true, like, true Christian teachings and, like, have them, like, really experience it. Like, yeah, yeah like, don't, they're not kids anymore. They're not quite adults in today's standards, but they're not kids anymore, and they can handle much more than we give them credit for. And I think that the early church, from just talking with you and hearing your heart for the early church and hearing stories about youth in the early church, like it, they understood that. And somewhere along the line, we've missed that. Um, and I would love personally to get that back. Yeah. Yeah, like and I, I want to think about like too, you know, what is it that maybe is keeping us as parents from from really letting our children partake of that true Christian training, like letting them experience that risk maybe and that rejection and maybe some danger. You know, what is it that's keeping us from that? Because I, I, remember, I remember a story uh, from a, a youth pastor friend of, of mine that, uh, you know, he, he was taking out one of his students that was really on fire for God really on fire for Christ, and uh, they, they wanted to go, the student wanted to go evangelize. Let's, let's go to a mall. Let's, let's talk to people about, about Christ. Awesome. And the youth pastor was like, yeah, let's do it. And so they started going every weekend to the mall, talking to strangers about Jesus. And after several weeks of doing this, the student's parents, who were like leaders in the church, told the youth pastor to stop this because the student was not, he was pursuing an, uh, a direction, a road that was not going to lead him to be well-rounded. Hmm. Right? That's a really interesting, like, phrase, well-rounded there. Not in his faith, just yeah. as a human being. Yeah, 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 I get that. Like, so, so for me, like, so it's like he's a, spending too much time in his faith. Yeah. Right? Yeah, which seems absurd, right? It seems like how can you spend too much time in your faith? Like for a lot of us, we don't spend enough time in our faith. Actually, you can pull most evangelical pastors who will tell you that their personal time in the Bible is only when they're like preparing sermons. Like that's not personal growth. That's not you connecting with God. That's you preparing to pour yourself out. So like, can you really ever pour yourself too much or too far into this faith? But so we were talking earlier about this and I have not had a change of heart a little bit at all, but I have like a perspective, you know, like, so again, I bring this up. Um, so my son's he's, he's type one diabetic and has been, you know, since before he was two. So he will always like stand out a little bit. He'll always be the kid until he gets like maybe an artificial pancreas, which this is not a, like a medical like podcast, so we're not going to get into that. But he'll always be the kid who can't have cake at parties or who like, hey, before we go swimming in a hot tub or with friends or whatever, like I need to check my blood sugar. Like he'll, he will always be singled out, right? I want him to be accepted and to fit in. And I the desire that, that these, these, these people, these parents in this story... I think it comes from a good place. 
like I want my my kid to be accepted and to be like not looked at as weird, to not be looked at as like he's a zealot, right? Or he's like like hyper Christian or I don't like you know, which is whatever it is, like yeah. you know, I'm not gonna throw this word out easily or lightly, but like he's fundamentalist. Like he does, he actually does all this stuff. And I know there's like a whole loaded word. I don't mean it in a political or like theological sense, but um I think the parents here have a really inherently good desire to have their kid be accepted and to be liked and to fit in. Cause I have that same. Um, and when I was a teenager, I wasn't serious about faith at all. Had I had a friend who was going to malls, asking people about Jesus, offering prayer and being that open and that bold with their faith and that courageous with their faith, I might like laugh or just stop talking to him. You know, like that's, that's who I was in high schools. And I know that I wouldn't want that for my son, but there's a, but like a huge, like big old, like comma before we go on here. That's not up to parents to choose that for their specifically teenage kids. Um, there, there's a time like we just, I just said this was, where your kid is no longer a kid and can make his or her own destiny. Um, they can start following their own path. They can start really leaning in into how God has made them to be. Um, and if my son wants to go to a mall and be laughed at and pray for people in the name of Jesus, I'll let him. If he wants to shy away from that, if he's too scared to do it, I will let the Holy Spirit do his work in his life. And I'll let that kind of unfold, right? But the end point that I want to make on this story is the same. Like, it's, and maybe this isn't the answer you're looking for. I'm not looking for a <laughs> But the parents, at some point, need to trust that God has their best son or daughters, like, at heart. Like, he has their best plans, their best, um, his best intentions, their best whatever use of their gifts, whatever it is, like he has their best at heart. Um, yeah, I, I, it's hard cause I, I understand where the parents are coming from, but we need our teenagers to be the lights in the church. Like legally in Texas, at least as far as I knew and was told by people, I couldn't go onto a school campus if I wasn't in emergency contact. Like for lunch, I couldn't go. I can go for like, see you at the pool. I can go for like you know, sports events and stuff, but like during lunch or whatever the case may be, like during school hours, I was not allowed on site without being an emergency contact as far as I was told and led to believe. So if adults can't reach schools and they're cracking down on teachers praying, and, I mean, you know, like, you know, the whole, we can't share our faith openly as much as we had maybe in the past. So if adults and like pastors of churches aren't reaching schools, then who is? Teenagers. But more than that, it's not a last resort because that the way I said that makes it sound like, well, if we can't, then you guys can. It's a no, 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 no. You were always supposed to be doing this. This was always your task. This was always like your mission. Like right now, you can't just give up everything and move to Africa and be a missionary and plant churches. You can't just give up everything in like, you know, material wise. Yeah. 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 Like you don't, 
you don't have that ease of road to go do that or the, the means to do that. But you can be Jesus every single day in the halls of your school and in the huddles on your sports teams and in the um, rehearsals of your plays. You can be Jesus. And that's, that's what we're missing is there's a missional aspect to being a teenager that I don't know if it's ignored or pushed aside, but parents don't naturally. Um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. Parents don't naturally like encourage that, I guess, in their youth. So let me run something by you. Yeah. yeah. Just see what you think about this. So love it. I'm, I'm <laughs> just kidding. I have no idea. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> just because it's Phil. Yeah. Phil and I. So like things that are virtuous. Okay. In today's culture, today's Christian culture would be something like our kids being well-rounded. That's considered virtuous. Like yeah. We want our kids to be well, well-rounded because that looks good on college essays or college yeah. uh, entrance essays. Right. Yeah. It's good to be well-rounded. It's good to be well-liked. It's mm-hmm. good to be accepted. It's virtuous to be well-liked. It's virtuous to be accepted. It's virtuous to be popular. It's vir- see these virtues. Yeah. Right. Of course. To not be weird is virtuous. Ah, right? Yes. These the, kinds the of w things, right? The W word, weird. Right, right, right. So it's interesting. There, there's this guy named Lactantius who was uh, writing during the last great persecution, the Valerian persecution. This is around 304 CE. Okay, and this is just horrific persecutions. I'm going to get to this word virtue toward the end of the quote. It's a little bit lengthy, but hang with me because he's describing yeah. the stuff that's going on and what was going on with... Christian youths, all right? Mm -hmm. So he says, people see, people, non-Christians, see that Christian men are lacerated by various kinds of tortures, yet those men retain their patience unsubdued while the executioners are wearied, right? So the Christians are like hanging with it, and the executioners are getting tired, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's a weird thought to have. Yeah, seeing this, the crowd realizes that Endurance alone could not have overcome such great tortures without the aid of God. So God's helping them. After all, robbers and men of robust frame are unable to endure lacerations of this kind, right? But in our case, boys and delicate women in silence overpower their torturers. Not that they're like breaking their way out. Yeah. It's just they're overpowering them by their... like. Like a sheep, he was led to the, the slaughter, you know, without yeah. uttering a word kind of thing. All right. So even the fire is unable to extort a groan from them, these, these boys. They endure because they put their trust in God. To choose to be tortured and slain rather than to take incense in three fingers and throw it upon the fire appears to the pagans as foolish. That's what they would do when they walk into the Agora, right? Take some incense, throw it to Caesar. Mm-hmm. It's a way of saying you, you, you worship Caesar, basically. You, you recognize him as a deity. Now, it is a virtue to despise death is for a Christian. It's a virtue to despise death. It is not that we seek death or of our own accord to inflict it upon ourselves, which is a wicked and impious thing. Rather, if we are compelled to desert God and betray our faith, we would prefer to undergo death. So if they're being, you know, saying, deny Christ or you're going to die, they're like, okay, Mm -hmm. no problem. I'll die. Yeah. Well, these are boys he's talking about. Mm -hmm. 
Thus, with lofty and invincible minds, we trample upon those things that others fear, pain and death. And this is virtue. This is true constancy, to be steadfast and unmoving in this one thing alone, that no terror nor any violence can turn us away from God. So that's the quote. Like, this is virtue. No terror, no violence can turn us away from God. We are unmoving. We're steadfast in this. So it's pretty interesting, this, this idea of virtue. Yeah. Right? That's, not, that's not preached to today's, to today's men, you know, men in church or women in church, and mm-hmm. certainly not to youth. You know, to really, like, it's the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Beatitudes. You are blessed when you're persecuted. Yeah. Consider yourself blessed. Consider yourself blessed when you're excluded, when you're insulted, when people say all kinds of evil and wicked things about you for my name's sake, you're blessed. Your reward is great in heaven. You know, the kingdom yeah. is with you now. That kind of stuff is not really preached as virtuous. Yeah. So you just you just said something like, you are blessed when you're persecuted. You have you have all these you have these treasures and riches and rewards in heaven, right? Mm. I think that that is the key. That is so far removed from today's culture. I was, while you're reading that quote, I'm thinking like, honestly thinking like, oh my gosh, like I think if I ever read that quote and like a talk on like first century virtues, you know, it's my middle school group. I might not have one at all come back the next week. That's, it's heavy and it's really dark and it's really like gory and gruesome. But more than that, it's, the word running through my mind was like, this is just not like at all relatable to today's teenagers. I guess we live in a whole different time. We live in a different like culture and we live in a nation where it's free to practice you know, your religion. Your, your, your quote was just like so not relatable until we started describing it. And I think for me, as I hear that, like, there's there's such a and I'm having like a hard time finding the right words because this is a really delicate like sure. issue talking about kids you know teenagers and youth dying for their faith. There is a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost. It's it may not be the same as it is today as it is as it was like you know back then. Um, but there's a cost to following Jesus and there's something that we give up. And there's, there are things that we a give up like our life sometimes that, you know, or things about ourselves or certain friend groups or whatever the case may be, but there are things that we give up and that's, that's not told all the way. I don't think it's fleshed out all the way in today's Christian culture, mainstream Christian culture. Um, this talk of you have on one hand the things of the world and on the other hand, the thing that the things that God has for you, you can't just willingly have both. Like they don't, they don't mix. And first John talks about light and dark in the, in these terms, like you don't have lightness, light, light and darkness together. You don't have the things of the world, sin and mistakes. And when I say sin, I mean, habitual sin. I mean like, yeah, I mean like, I'm following Jesus and I make a, like, you know, I make a mistake. I sin. I'm still clearly following Jesus, right? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about 
either ignorant or unrepentant or just habitual, I keep coming back to the same stuff. Um, it costs us this, and it may not be the same cost as it was back then, but I think this whole idea of, like, you can't have what the world has and also at the same time what God has for you, that's not talked about a whole lot. We try to a little bit where we are here in, in Pennsylvania. We try to hit that a little bit, um, but even then, it's, like, uncomfortable. It's even then, like, oh, like, this, this requires something of me. You know, so, for instance, very small, very, very, very small, like, uh, example. We have a group of 7th and 8th graders who um, act as our, like, middle school Wednesday night, like, almost like a first impressions team, like a lot of churches have, you know, on Sunday mornings um, with their, like, adult church. Big, I still call it big church because, you know, I'm a youth pastor, and so everything's, like, big church. Um, but these students willingly give up their first like 10, 15 minutes of our like youth, you know, of our youth group on Wednesday nights is like fellowship, hang out, there's games, there's video games, there's, you know, basketball, there's all this stuff going on. They give up that time to go and see students standing on the walls by themselves or a new student who may be talking with others, but just go introduce themselves to a new student or like they give up that time to be with their friends and hanging out too live missionally and then we're trying to teach slowly in really small steps of what it looks like to like this is a small cost of following Jesus you give up something you sacrifice something to see his kingdom furthered on this on this earth that's what it's all about not sacrifice but it's all about seeing his kingdom furthered on this earth um so while while I I would say like the the topic is probably unrelatable the example may be unrelatable. The topic needs to be addressed. There's a cost to this all, you know, and there's, but the cost comes with looking at and recognizing that teenagers aren't kids anymore. They are, they're ready for some meat. They're ready for some discipleship. They're ready for some depth. Yeah. And you know, it's really interesting how kids can change cultures. Yes. Yes. Kids being willing to sacrifice and put fear aside has such a huge impact on adults. You know, yes. We were talking earlier about what really changed the civil rights movement in, in America is in Birmingham when the pastors in Birmingham got together with Martin Luther King and, and they were like, look, our kids are ready. They're willing to put our, themselves on the line. And so around 3,000 young men and women, students, high school, middle school students got together and they're like, you know, Bull Connor, you know, the main, the main, you know, police guy, basically, you can, you can stick your dogs on us and we're not going to stop. And he did. And that got you know, national media coverage. The United States saw it. And that's what turned the hearts of the country when the middle school and high school students were like, you can put the dogs on us, but we're going to take a stand for the kingdom of God, really, mm -hmm. you know, for injustice. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's real. That's 50 years ago, 60 years ago mm -hmm. in our country. And we see a lot of, you know, racial injustice going on today. Yeah. We see a lot of crazy yeah. stuff going on today. And, you know, our kids are going to be living in some perilous times, mm -hmm. probably. And so, you know, the more we can get them in situations where they're, where they're on mission, living on mission and taking risks, and putting their fear aside, choosing courage, choosing yeah. love, love of neighbor, 
over insecurity, choosing love of neighbor over fear of being embarrassed, you know, yeah. love of neighbor, continuing to do that love of neighbor action. That's risk. That's, you know, requiring self-sacrifice, all this kind of stuff, whether it's literal or small, the more we can have those object lessons built in starting at home first, like you were talking about mom and dad, like, is it scary to go talk with a homeless person, sit down with them? You're going to look foolish. If you sit yeah. down with them and eat a meal with them, you know, and pray with them, that might be risky for them. Yeah. That might look foolish, whatever. But I was like just going to ask you, like, so what does this look like? How do we get to this point where we... It's little steps like yeah. that, though, right? Where yeah. you're willing to, you know, sacrifice your pride. Like, you know, Jesus is constantly asking people to give things up, right? He goes to the rich young ruler and he's like, leave everything behind. But then he comes to Bartimaeus and Bartimaeus has nothing. He's completely broke. And yet Bartimaeus is like, please have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me. And what does Jesus do? He just keeps on walking. <laughs> he keeps on walking. He knows he can hear Bartimaeus, but why did he keep on walking? So Bartimaeus screams louder and louder. This is all Luke 19, if I'm remembering it correctly. Maybe it's Luke 20. I can't remember. Take your word but, for it. Yeah, somewhere around in there. But uh, maybe it's Luke 18. Some, yeah. All right, man. So uh, anyway, so he just screams louder and louder. It's like he's losing his voice. You know, why would Jesus make Bartimaeus basically lose his voice before Jesus stops and turns around and say, what can I do for you? Why would he make him go to that extreme? It's a like blind of, man. Yeah. It's like one of those things like how far, like how much, like do you really want, like how, you know, how far are you willing to go kind of thing? Yeah, what, what, what did Bartimaeus have to lose? The, the rich young ruler had a lot of monetary stuff to lose. Yeah. What did Bartimaeus have to lose? Everybody's got something to lose. So I could be wrong, but looking at it, everybody's got a sense of at least a shred of self-respect and dignity. And Bartimaeus was willing to look like a fool to get that, to get his miracle, you know, but he had to give it up. Jesus Mm -hmm. was going to keep on walking, you know? And so like, maybe that's something that Jesus is calling us as parents to do, to be willing to lose our dignity for him, we look foolish. But if we can model that for our kids, I mean, that's huge in middle yeah. school and high school. Huge, yeah. So if we can model that with them in doing object lessons in different ways, I mean, I think that'll really help us because, you know, there is going to come a time, there could come a time, there could come a time where we are asked to deny Christ. Mm-hmm. And so what are we going to do then? Well, really, what we're going to do then is based on what we've been doing throughout our lives. Like, we, you, you played soccer. Yeah. And the reason, I mean, I'm sure you did tons of drills over and over and over. Yeah. You yeah. know, why do you do that after you've been playing soccer for 16, 17 years? So in the game, it's like second nature. Exactly. You do what you've practiced. And if we've practiced shrinking back when a gun's to our head or a knife's to our throat, we're going to do what we've practiced because that's second nature. Cowardice is second nature. Or courage is second nature. Which one is it going to be? Well, what are we practicing? And the more live action drills you can do in practice, the better, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, I, I mean, that's just kind of different thoughts I've been having, you know? How can I do more live action drills? Yeah, so, yeah, this, this is kind of like, I feel like, you know, I don't know how much time we have left. I feel like this yeah. is a really good conclusion point. Yeah, yeah, bring it home. Um, so, as, you know, as a, good, as a good pastor, you always want to end with how do I live this out? How do I take your one like nugget of truth? Yeah. How can I put it into practice today? Right. Um, and this, and this is actually 
for parents, from my perspective, like maybe there's some teenagers listening to this. I have no idea. But if you're a parent or you're an adult, like Phil just asked a really good question. Um, how, what baby steps do I take to model this for my kids or my, my children, like young children or middle school or high school students? You don't need the church to plan service projects. You don't need the church to program discipleship. You don't need the church to program these things. You are the church. We are the church together. A family like can give up a part of their Thanksgiving to go to a nearby you know, food pantry or a soup kitchen and serve. A family can go to a local park, pick up trash in the local park and hand out water bottles on a really hot day. Like families can see what's going on in the news, you know, like during commercial breaks or if you're watching like on whatever you can pause it and you can talk about through the image of God, how he sees people, how he sees races and religions and how he sees um, all his children. You know, like there, there are very teachable moments in all this and you don't need the church to put a service project together for you to come do, you can do it on your own. And that actually will speak volumes like more than the church programming is families getting together sometimes with other families. So that, you know, students are not alone doing it, but like go love your communities together, love your backyards together, love your neighbors together. Um, and your students will like that will change them. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking time, man, Tyler. I I really appreciate it, dude. This is great. I think it's going to bless a lot of people. Anything, Phil. Anything for you, man. Love you. (laughs) Love you too, buddy. (laughs) All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up. Everywhere I turn bad news back at me every street is stained with tears green just as apathy the mirror makes me see a land of slavery and fear now I choose to believe in your good news and no hurricane can tear me away from your love Jesus, I choose to believe in your good news. The good work that you've begun, no, it won't be undone. Lord, I hear you calling now. Seek and save that which is lost Not to be served but to serve Along this hard road For your fame carry my cross Now I choose To believe in your good news That no hurricane can tear me away from your love Jesus, I choose to believe in your good news. The good work that you've begun, no, it won't be 
undone Cause your blood It's powerful and mighty as your blood It will break the chains that bind me as your blood It's all the evidence that I need Reminds me of your mercy when bad news is all that I see. I choose to believe in your good news The good work that you've begun, no, it won't be undone Cause one day, one day, no more sorrow, no more shame Every tear will be wiped away in Jesus' name One day, one day suffering and no more pain the curse is broken in Jesus name in Jesus name one day one day one day one day one day